0: Welcome to this In Conversation podcast produced by Queen's University Belfast and focusing on the work of Harvard University's Professor David Armitage. I'm Richard English, Professor of Politics here at Queen's, and it's a great pleasure to introduce and to speak with Professor Armitage, who is the Lloyd C. Blankfein Professor of History at Harvard, and also, I'm delighted to say, an Honorary Professor at Queen's University Belfast. Educated at the University of Cambridge and at Princeton University, Professor Armitage taught for 11 years at Columbia in New York before moving to Harvard in 2004. A prize-winning teacher and writer, he's the author or editor of 18 books, including Civil Wars, A History in Ideas, published by Yale University Press, and The Ideological Origins of the British Empire, published by Cambridge University Press, which won the Longman History Today Book of the Year Award. David, I thought we'd focus mainly today on your co-authored book, The History Manifesto, also published by Cambridge University Press. It's a book which sets out a powerful case that historians and their long-term perspectives should have a greater role in the public realm, in policy, in political decision making. Could you briefly set out for us the central argument and thinking at the heart of that book?
1: Absolutely, Richard. And first of all, thank you so much for this opportunity to interact with the Queen's community. One of the many frustrations of our current situation is not being able to come to Belfast to see everyone in person. So it's wonderful to be able to join you virtually here. So the History Manifesto, which I co-authored with my friend and colleague uh, Joe Gouldy appeared uh, now five or six years ago and made uh, two arguments. One about history and one about historians. The argument about history was that history as a discipline and a practice is, uh, it takes place in the present, reconstructing the past, looking towards the future, in particular, looking towards influencing uh, action in the future. The second part of the argument relating to historians uh, was that uh, for a relatively long period, a couple of generations from roughly the 1970s to the early part of the 20th century, historians had concentrated their activities uh, more on the reconstruction of the past than they did with reconstructing that past in relation to the present and certainly they'd abandon any idea of looking towards the future as uh, tom devine the great scottish historian uh, once said when when asked a question about where scotland was heading he said the future is not my period uh, and i think that would speak for all historians so what we were trying to do in the history manifesto was precisely to make a case for the return of history to the con- concerns of the present, and in particular to reposition history and historians in public conversations, which had been largely taken over, uh, and this uh, remains the case, uh, largely taken over by economists and political scientists, now of course in our current crisis, uh, supplemented by epidemiologists and virologists and, and other scientists as well. But we believe strongly that historians uh, classically for 2000 years, at least in Western and other traditions, had this very important role in directing the present towards the future. And we argued very forcefully, too forcefully for some of our colleagues, uh, that historians should recover that role again.
0: You say in the book that good history examines processes that take a long time to unfold. And you also stressed the need for historians' assessment of the kinds and the origins of data that are used when policymakers make decisions, something which, again, has become contentious in our current crisis with COVID-19. Could you say something about historians, big data, and the relationship between the two?
1: Yes, I mean, that's a very important question. One thing that uh, a historical perspective on big data shows us is that big data has not just been uh, numerical or quantitative, uh, and therefore the uh, purview only of uh, scientists and those uh, in the social sciences who imitated the natural scientists, but at least going back to the 17th century and before, uh, big data has been in the form of uh, texts, uh, arguments, languages, uh, and other corpora as well. So we made a very strong case for the integration of various different kinds of big data, the sorts of sources that historians have historically, since uh, the origins of um, history as a profession have been trained to deal with, but also to integrate into that new kinds of data, the kinds of data which have generally been the exclusive preserve of Uh, scientists, uh, trained and untrained, uh, but also, crucially, to give historical perspective on uh, the meanings of data, uh, how data is collected, how it is analyzed in order to provide a skeptical viewpoint uh, on the forms and the accumulation of data and the kinds of lessons that we as historians are all trained to think about where did this archive come from? Who put it together? uh, What are the uh, uh, shaping categories of the information in that archive? This is meat and drink, bread and butter for historians. That kind of uh, constructive skepticism should also be applied to big data as well. And we're seeing, of course, a great many more historians who are integrating economic data and scientific data uh, and other kinds of Uh, non-traditional, non-textual, non-philological material into their historical uh, studies. And so we wanted to to raise consciousness about the need for scepticism in relation to that, but also for a stronger historical consciousness about the genesis and the generation, the genealogy, as well as the treatment uh, of data in the present. The book reinforced
0: and has led to debates which have further reinforced your role and standing as a public historian. And you're there in a tradition of people In the United States, from where you're speaking to us here in these islands, in Britain and Ireland as well, who have had a public audience, who have wanted to engage not only with people within the university community or the academic scholarly community, but beyond that. You mention in the book, among others, an historian to whom I find myself returning very frequently, Eric Mm -hmm. Hobsbawm, perhaps especially when I disagree with him, I find there's an inspiration in the kind of way he engaged beyond the Academy. Could you say something about which historians with public audiences have most influenced you as you've developed the kind of approach which you're adumbrating in regard to this book and its case?
1: yes i think hobbsworm is a wonderful example because he was able to move uh, not just between periods and places in his in his studies but also from relatively small histories of bandits all the way up to the larger histories of empire and capitalism that that movement between scales uh, and the necessity of assuming that there's no incompatibility between dealing on the large scale as well as the small scale i think is one of the great uh, inspirations of hobbsworm's work from um, its very beginnings all the way up to his, his very final publication. So I think there's there's no better example in the English-speaking world of that. Of course, we've seen, a, a, a even in the years since we published the History Manifesto, we've seen a much wider turn by professional historians to big questions. Again, uh, I think of the the classicists' um Uh, Ian Morris or or, or, uh, or, uh, Victor Scheidel, for instance, dealing with very long range, as we say in the book, long durée uh, processes about uh, inequality and and economic change. Uh, A book I I recently read and admired enormously by David Abelafia in Cambridge, uh, 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 The Boundless Sea, uh, reimagining the entirety of Uh, uh, the history of the world and humans' interactions with the world through the oceans, a very important topic at a moment when the oceans are a major index of climate change. Coming right up to the present and the present crisis, uh, the commentators I found most illuminating in the last few weeks and months to help us get our heads around uh, what's happening right now are uh, my Harvard colleague Naomi Oreskes, who's uh, book merchants of doubt about um, uh, those who uh, have denied uh, uh, science in recent years in the U.S. Uh, has been very illuminating for thinking about the political divisions which have emerged here in relation to uh, the response to COVID, for instance, in, in Britain among historians or among British historians, uh, the ways in which, uh, for example, David Edgerton and Adam Tooze uh, have uh, deployed their historical knowledge and important ways, not least to show the disanalogies between the past. David Edgerton showing the, the crucial ways in which our current crisis is not remotely like 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 the second world war or Adam II showing the way in which our current, the current economic backwash of the COVID crisis is wholly unlike uh, any recent or indeed past uh, financial crisis, for instance. So I I think we are seeing, uh, in many ways, in in the current crisis, uh, the resurgence of historians with long-range perspectives in exactly the kind of way that we uh, hoped and um, uh, uh, urged in the History Manifesto that historians should do. This is a great moment for historians and a really necessary moment for historical perspective on our current uh, situation. So it sounds like there have been aspects
0: of the current crisis which in terms of your historiographical orientation and argument have been somewhat encouraging. The the, the distinguished scholars to whom you're referring there have been prominent, and it's not purely been epidemiologists or economists who've been speaking. Has it it surprised you that there's been that prominence from historians, or did you think that the tide was moving in this direction and this has just been the crisis which has uh, most recently exemplified it?
1: Uh, less less surprised than delighted I, I would say uh, i've always had confidence that historians uh, can speak to the biggest questions. that was really what animated uh, our our book was uh, was intended not to uh, to criticize the majority of historians for having failed uh, in some mission but to encourage and unleash the potentialities which have always been in the historical profession and among historians really to make sense of the most um, complicated problems that, that face us nationally and internationally. So I think uh, the, the the prominence of historians on both sides of the Atlantic in making sense of the current crisis is really a realization of that, that uh, perhaps pent up uh, uh, possibility and potentiality, but it's been very gratifying to see how essential that historical perspective has been. And even just thinking about the, the headlines this, this very morning with uh, the bank of England uh, saying that the, the current recession is is the worst uh, since records began effectively in the last 300 years since the South Sea bubble. That's familiar enough to 18th century historians, uh, but to be told that we have to think now on a 300-year-plus timescale to begin to... even to begin to understand the magnitude of what we're facing going forward uh, is a very salutary sign that uh, the historians can now rush in uh, to uh, begin to make sense of this along with um, the other uh, data scientists uh, and curators of uh, uh, material from the past, whether it's in human bodies or in laboratories or in medical records, uh, really to give us a fully uh, multidimensional account of both where we are and crucially where we're heading.
0: Not everybody, of course, is is keen on history being usable by the present to use one of the phrases from your book. And, uh, it's interesting. I reflect when I was an undergraduate a long time ago, there was a skepticism from some of my tutors about the idea that one would think about history in terms of the ways in which it would contribute to what we were thinking about our, in relation to our futures and our, and our present. Could you reflect on some of the objections people have put forward to what they see as the dangers of presentism and indeed some reflections on what presentism might actually be understood to mean because it's, as you've written elsewhere, it's a more complicated word than people sometimes assume, I think.
1: Absolutely, yes. I think we need to disentangle various different, sometimes intersecting, uh, ideas of presentism. One is um, uh, the idea associated most famously with Herbert Butterfield in his Whig interpretation of history, uh, that the present, uh, the past only existed to realise the present, to be the the seedbed for the present. That's a kind of teleological view that uh, everybody in the past was striving to make us uh, in all of our grandeur and brilliance um, uh, so, uh, only the present uh, matters, and the past was merely prelude to that uh, that 's uh, related to uh, a couple of other ideas that the uh, the uh, The presentism means really the pressure of the present, of present problems and present concerns in determining what we're interested in about the past. We only see those things in the past that have any relevance to what puts pressure upon us in the present and we ignore vast dimensions, perhaps almost all of the past, because it doesn't fit with uh, our own uh, current um, Uh, worries. Uh, This has sometimes also been called a present-mindedness, the idea that uh, we're shrinking our horizons only to the concerns of the present, we can barely see beyond our own noses when we look into the past or investigate uh, the archives, uh, and that uh, this uh, relates uh, perhaps more generally to Uh, concerns, for instance, about uh, teaching, about the interests of students, uh, that the historical horizon of uh, historians as teachers as well as writers is shrinking ever closer to the present. I think many of us have noticed this in the departments of history that that we know that students get more and more interested the closer and closer uh, our courses get to the present or to present concerns. Uh, we're not necessarily therefore giving them the full range of uh, the interest and the stimulation the perspective which is essential from the past Uh, and then a more perhaps sophisticated or philosophical view of presentism is one that's been put forward by particularly some French uh, theorists of history is that in our contemporary period in the period since the late 20th century uh, the present has weighed upon us uh, as humans, much more than the past or the future, that uh, this shrinkage of horizons that's been diagnosed by critics of presentism among historians is in fact just one symptom of a broader uh, shrinkage towards the present in human horizons for calculation, calculating both where we came from uh, and where we might be going to. Um, I think, again, one of the salutary aspects, if we can look for some hope amid the wreckage of the current crisis is that necessarily we're being asked to expand our horizons both backwards to the past? Where did this all come from? Uh, What are the contributory factors that uh, uh, have both uh, created the crisis and also accelerated its uh, destructive effects? And also to reorient us towards the future. How do we get out of this crisis? What alternative futures uh, does uh, the wrecking effect of this crisis uh, open up for us in planning towards uh, a multiplicity of futures uh, going forward?
0: On that multiplicity of futures, one of the themes which emerges in the History Manifesto very strongly is the importance of counterfactual history, which has returned with some force in recent decades professionally. Could you say a bit more about how such thinking could contribute valuably to how we react to crises and challenges, whether those of COVID-19 or the enduring challenge of climate change? Because it would seem to have relevance to how we think about possible actions for multiple futures.
1: of the arguments that we made in the History Manifesto is that uh, historians uh, have skills Derived from their work on the past, which are directly relevant to thinking about the future. Uh, The past comes to us in incomplete ways. We only have fragmentary evidence of that past. Uh, We have uh, to put the information that we have, those fragments, into plausible frameworks and uh, provide uh, different forms of explanation for those fragmentary forms of the past. In this sense, the past is rather like the future. We have a remarkable amount of information about the future. It's lying all around us, uh, but it is necessarily. A fragmentary open-ended and uh, demands imagination to construct multiple futures as historians necessarily uh, produce multiple pasts. When counterfactual thinking uh, resurged among historians from the 1980s, and it's remained popular since exactly as you say, it's been mostly uh, about looking to the past. What happened if um, Cleopatra had a longer nose, to to take the famous example that Voltaire uh, raised in in the 18th century. Uh, What if uh, William III had died uh, before he was able to get to England in 1688. What if uh, Hitler had been assassinated? How his history have been, been been different? Uh, we would put forward a different kind of counterfactual history which is precisely about the counterfactuals in relation to multiple scenarios for the future, using these historical tr- tools of analyzing multiple causes, uh, putting together plausible frameworks or scenarios integrating available information fragmentary or slippery uh, as it may be uh, uh, To think think forward uh, To uh, the possibilities for the future. And I think this this has only been uh, uh, Made more plausible but also accelerated in its urgency by the current situation where in effect uh, What is happening around us on a global scale? is uh, a set of multiple natural experiments, unbidden and unplanned necessarily, but we have the possibility for mutual learning and mutual surveillance around the world with different futures playing out. I remember only six weeks ago, uh, uh, sitting here in in the U.S. just before our lockdown, looking for instance at the news from Italy uh, and thinking to myself and actually saying to friends and colleagues uh, what we see in Italy is our future. It's advancing rapidly towards us um, in a terrifying way. What we're seeing now as we're observing the the relaxation of the lockdowns in continental Europe, as also earlier in Asia, for instance, Uh, intimations of the futures which are arriving for us in the UK or or the United States uh, at the moment, for instance. So we're undergoing an exercise in counterfactual in thinking based upon uh, contemporary facts and contemporary factuality where scenarios are being tried out. We won't know the consequences of many of them for months or even years. Uh, But we have to do our best with that. So this this extraordinary social scientific come epidemiological come historical experiment is going on before our very eyes. And again, to loop back to one of your earlier questions, I think the prominence of historians in public discourse in the English speaking world is a sign that historians do have the tools along with the scientists uh, to uh, think through those counterfactual scenarios based on the emerging facts as we see them day by day and week by week now.
0: as a an originally uk person who's been long resident and working in the united states do you discern a difference of relationship in terms of the ways that scholars and policymakers or politicians engage Uh, watching the COVID crisis for example but thinking also about some debates that have been around the climate crisis. Uh, some things seem very resonant between London and Washington, for example, other things seem somewhat divergent in the ways in which there are aspects of integration. Could you comment on the different geographies of the relationship which the book The History Manifesto speaks to in terms of public history and its effects on policy making and decision making?
1: Yes, I I think as as with so many aspects of this crisis, uh, COVID has uh, accelerated and accentuated um, uh, aspects of precisely that relationship, which uh, were always present but are now in much higher relief. For instance, so uh, I'm I'm trying simultaneously as 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 a displaced Britain in the United States to follow closely what's what's happening in the UK at the same time as I'm doing doing that in the US as well, and it has been very observable. That, uh, uh, for instance, I I think the major, most important, and illuminating voice among historians based in the U.S. is a fellow Briton, Adam Tooze. I I follow his uh, copious uh, writings on 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 the crisis uh, uh, as much as I possibly can because I think he's giving uh, a a long-range and wide-angle view of what's what's going on um, in in ways that no other historian based in the U.S. is at the moment in relation to the larger financial crisis. There are historians. uh, Course in the, in the U.S. who are uh, addressing problems which are parallel in the U.K. Uh, the enormously higher proportions of uh, minority populations who uh, are dying because of COVID, the way in which this is related. To the uh, the bifurcated histories of the of the of, of the state, and indeed in the in the US, in relation to the states as well. How uh, I've seen a couple of very good recent, recent articles by historians, including uh, Gary Gerstall, the professor of American history at Cambridge, writing in the New York Times just this morning about how we're seeing a resurgence of federalism, uh, a re empowering of the states, who, have of course, been entirely abandoned by the federal government or thrown on their own resources there to recover powers which were always uh, to the states, especially since the Second World War, but have now become absolutely critical in promoting uh, public health at the local level, since there is simply no guidance uh, at, at the national level as well. So I think the peculiarities of federalism, um, the fact that there is a larger public sphere for scholars in the UK uh, uh, than there is uh, in the United States, especially for historians, has meant that historians of voices have been much more prominent in the British press and British media, uh, for instance. Uh, here even the scientists have been downgraded uh, certainly at the federal level um, and again this is exposing uh, the ways in which uh, as I mentioned before Naomi Oreski's work the work of others about uh, uh, the denial of science the sidelining of science um, uh, the uses of bad history uh, bad histories of uh, federal overreach for instance uh, are no longer of merely uh, scholarly interest but are actually uh, causing people to lose their lives uh, to read the wrong history to pass peddle the wrong history, tell misleading historical narratives is literally fatal in this country in a way which I think has not been the case uh, in the UK so far.
0: David, this particular transatlantic conversation has been very valuable for us as ever it's been Great to engage with you through your connection with Queen's University and to hear about your work and your ideas and contribution to history. Uh, For everybody listening to this, the History Manifesto by David Armitage and Joe Gouldy, published by Cambridge University Press. I'm sure that the stimulating comments Professor Armitage has made today will send you, if you've not read it, to go and read it, and if you have, to go and read it again. I always think that going back to books is one of the great merits of these kinds of conversation. David, we look forward to welcoming you physically back to Belfast when we can, but in the meantime, for a wonderful conversation today, many thanks indeed to Professor David Armitage. Thank you so much.